Hello, it's Mike Richards here from the Treasury Recruitment Company. I hope you're enjoying the Treasury Career Corner. If you are, great news. Perhaps you give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcast content. This means that even more Treasury professionals can benefit from finding out or by finding out about how Treasurers have achieved their career goals. The link to rate our show will list at the bottom of our show notes. And please remember as well, the show itself is as much about you as it is about us. If there are specific questions you want us to ask or there's feedback you want to give, please drop me an email. My direct email is mike at treasuryrecruitment.com, inventably enough. But anyway, that's enough from me. Let's get on with the show. So welcome to this week's Treasury Career Corner podcast, where we interview Treasury professionals about their Treasury careers. I talk to Treasury professionals from across the world about their roles, how they built their careers, where they are now, where they see both themselves and the Treasury profession going next. In this week's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Adam Richford, the Group Treasurer at Renewi PRC. Renewi is a leading European waste management company focusing on the European and North American markets. Renewi connect, collects waste and recycles it back into usable materials. So you've got recycled paper, metal, plastic, glass, wood, and then that comes out as energy and uh, contributing, as they say, in a concrete way to a circular economy. Their mission simply stated is waste no more. The Renewi Group was actually created in 2017 following the merger of the UK corporate Shanks Group with the Netherlands-based company Van Ganswinkel Group. They're listed on the London Stock Exchange have more than 8,000 employees spread over nine countries, 200 sites across Europe and North America. Now, for some of my shows, I've given increasingly long overviews, like me chatting away, of my guest careers. But I'm stopping that. I want my guests to tell their stories more than anything. So, Adam, uh, originally you started your finance career with EY, the global accounting firm. Perhaps kick us off there and how you started your journey. Yeah, thank you, Mike. So yes, absolutely. I started my career at Ernst & Young, a sort of fairly typical way into finance, doing the chartered accountancy qualification initially after university in a major big four company and getting a good exposure to lots of different um, clients and different experiences there. Um, and like many people after qualification, I looked to do something a little more interesting than auditing afterwards and, and joined the consulting practice within Ernst & Young focused on turnaround. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really the first exposure that I had then to treasury functions. So a lot of underperformance ends up in the treasury's lap for responsibility to manage the, the cash flow and other issues through difficult situations. So that was sort of the, the first glimpse into a, a treasury function was there in the consulting environment which I then followed on into a corporate environment with a, a, a fallen angel telco, um, where, which is my first sort of line responsibility for a treasury function, a company called Energist back in the day. Um, and then that led into a career in, in treasury thereafter, which was started in GE Capital, where I worked for, for about 10 years. Um, and then got a coral group before now joining Renew EPLC. Okay. And with the, you know, so going through from those early times at Energist and things, that was your first real experience of Treasury. What was it that grabbed you about Treasury? You, how come you got the role or how were you recruited into Energist and say, right, can you come into Treasury, please? And you're going, what's Treasury? Or, you know, give us, give us that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think, um, you know, what, what I particularly like about Treasury 
from the very beginning and, and still do today is that it sits high up the corporate agenda. So a lot of the strategic activities that are being considered by the company have a treasury implication or requirement, whether that's as it was in uh, in some of my early um, assignments around turnaround and underperformance, or more recently in terms of growth and corporate acquisitions and M&A and, uh, and mergers, where, you know, in each case, there's a, there's a treasury activity that needs to be managed. There's you know, an impetus to doing it is strategically important for um, the business to be successful in doing that. And, and that provides a lot of you know, dynamic activity and a lot of excitement, a lot of interest, and therefore a lot of scope to add a lot of value to the organization that you're supporting. Um, which is also then coupled with the, the more routine aspects of the treasury function to, to manage on a day-to-day -day basis as well. But it's certainly for me, it's the it's the dynamic elements that keep me most interested and excited by the, the career in treasury. And then you went to GE working within their real estate business. Explain how you know treasury was structured there and team-wise, and what was the role like. Yeah, so in, in GE is a, a massive company. It had a, a large financial services business uh, and therefore an appropriately large corporate treasury function, the majority of which was led out of the, the US. So it might have been around 500 people in total. Uh, my role in that context was much more sitting within a business unit, helping them think about the treasury issues associated with all of their activity. And, and in the period that I was there, we did a lot of corporate acquisitions and acquisitions and disposals of real estate properties and real estate portfolios, initially starting with creating a single treasury function following a couple of delisted companies that were taken private by GE um, in the early 2000s. We, we established a treasury function. We grew that portfolio both in the UK and Europe. Um, and then during the financial crisis, we then diversified that into um, a lending product, so we bought a number of lending portfolios, particularly from distressed sellers like Bradford and Bingley and, and others at the time. And so it was always evolving in terms of you know, the, the, the strategy for uh, the real estate business and sitting there within the treasury function was all about listening to what the business was doing, um, helping them understand you know, the implications from a, from a funding perspective, from a financing perspective, from an interest rate risk or FX perspective to contribute to that deal team and, and make sure that those deals happened and were managed successfully. Mm. And in a business like GE, GE is massive, you know, and, and everything else, and someone listening might think, well, hang on, you know, how hands-on was he when he was surely just sitting back telling people what to do? And I know, for instance, it wasn't because we recruited for you at the time and stuff, but what was your ethos around Treasury then and how did you get your hands on it? Yes, I, mean, I think in an M&A-driven environment, as the real estate business was, and it's very much understanding the idiosyncrasies of each of the individual transactions being a key part of the deal team involved heavily in the due diligence of the, the assets that are being acquired to understand you know, the cash flows of those assets, the, the exposures that are associated with that. And I think Treasury particularly came into its fore as we migrated from looking at owning buildings to lending against buildings and a number of the portfolios that we were acquiring had fixed rates, loans, and therefore you know, embedded within them, there was a mark-to-market on the interest rates of the, the loans themselves, hmm. as well as a recoverability issue associated with the value of the property relative to the value of the loan. 
itself. So, you know, that was one of the, the things that we did in those first acquisitions was to really get under the skin of what the embedded value of the interest rate risk was and then how that influenced the recoverability of the loans, particularly over time. So, you know, being very much a as you say, sleeves rolled up, working very much as part of the team to look at the, the details of each of the, the transactions and make sure that we understand you know, what we could do to, to manage those effectively or, or influence the, the price at which we'd be prepared to buy those, uh, those assets or, or indeed what we would want to sell otherwise. And team-wise, I think you had a team of four in London. What, what, were, you, you know, what were you like as a leader for those guys or what, what was the team sort of structure? Yeah, so we had um, uh, we had coverage for the European real estate business at GE, a treasurer based in in Paris, and, and some guys based in the UK as well, covering the the entire European area. You know, individually, the, the teams were mostly focused on a particular segment of the portfolio. So country basis was was how it was structured. Um, so the French treasurer would look after the majority of the French transactions. What we would try to do is you know give the teams. A good exposure to all of the activity in those particular country divisions, um, make sure that they had the, the skills and capabilities to, to review those transactions and that they could discuss those with you know, the broader team and, and make sure that they got their input as to what the, the key issues and risks were to be able to manage those effectively and advise the business appropriately. And then from there, GE changed quite radically and sort of exited a lot of their, you know, changed from being a big financial services and GE Capital and change that to actually be an industrial company now. And obviously that then impacted you guys. Talk us through how you managed yeah, that. Yeah, so I think you know, GE you know, made a, uh, picked up a SIFI designation um, during the financial crisis. So it proved that it was a significant financial institution in the US. Um, with that came a lot of regulatory requirements to report and manage the financial services business in a very careful fashion. Um, which became quite burdensome and distracting for GE as a as a company, and, and they chose to therefore exit the financial services business, which was a a very large financial services business, and so they exited the real estate business um, amongst many others, and you know dispersed the the assets to new owners and and the teams, obviously to the to the four winds as well. So mm. there's a, a lot of GE colleagues that are in many many other financial institutions these days because the business no longer exists in that place and then you made you made a move to gala coral some people will not know you know certainly outside of the uk they're not going to know the gala coral group maybe explain what that was if you would yeah so uh, gala coral a licensed betting office and online gaming and uh, a bingo and betting shop business which was in private equity ownership uh, a high leverage structure under that private equity ownership very much focused at that point in in its evolution when i joined on looking at the exits for the private equity firm whether that would have been you know an ipo or um, as it was in the end a trade sale uh, in terms of the transaction with labbrooks and throughout that period you were obviously doing lots of different activity because by the end of it had the group sold or what had actually happened by the end when you finished with the role so uh, when when we finished there, it was agreed in terms of the transaction with Ladbrokes subject to competition authority approval. Um, the competition authority approval in that context was a, a phase two competition authority um, process, which was uh, requiring some remediation 
whereby if they were, were had too much density of licensed betting officers within a local market, they would need to sell a number of those assets to somebody else to ensure they didn't have a, a too strong a competitive position within a micro market. Right. So that process is expected to then take a year or so to conclude in terms of the response from, from the competition authority in terms of that process, um, and then a disposal process to be managed thereafter. So that was likely to be a, a long period of time and, and hence a good opportunity at that point to, to move elsewhere. Throughout that period, as if you weren't busy enough, do you think you were studying your MCT, which are the sort of the top level of treasury exams you can do within the UK Association of Treasurers, and you were even a prize winner and top of the class. So you've got a family, you've got all those demands, and some people say, oh, and I've got to study as well. But you, you cope with both. Talk us through that, if you would. Yeah, look, I think there, were, there was there's definitely a big commitment for the MCT, but I think it's certainly been worth it in, in my mind. So when I uh, read the, the materials that said you were going to spend 10 to 15 hours a week studying for a period of 15 months, I thought that can't possibly be true. It can't take that much time at all. But but they were absolutely right, of course. <laughs> and thankfully, uh, my wife was very supportive, and so I was able to, to do that at a, at a more senior point in my career. And actually doing that, having had a lot of experience at that point was really good because it sort of helped solidify some of the things that I had seen and, and put a bit more theory around some of those things and, and actually was well positioned in anticipation of some of the future things that I've done since then actually to, to think more strategically about the, the funding of the organization and how to practically think about those funding decisions and, and how to, to manage the sort of strategic treasury questions which you know, a lot are oriented around the, the funding and financing decisions in that context. So it was, it was a very valuable experience. I thought also you know, the, the content was, was useful, but also the, the approach was really useful and, and working closely with a, a cohort of other treasurers. Um, a lot of the material was done you know, online and interactive, giving feedback to each other on, on our responses to um, case studies, which w- was really an interesting way to learn from other people's e- experience and exposure. But to your original question, you're obviously quite challenging to fit in in the context of a uh, a busy job and a busy family life. Mm. But th- thankfully, well worth it in, in the end, I think, from my perspective. At the time you were finishing your MCT, you weren't busy enough. Well, I actually secured you the role at Renewy. Talk us through that new position and that move. Yes, I think Renewy was a really interesting move for me. So this was a move from a private equity environment into a PLC environment. A very interesting challenge in that context. You know, Shanks, as was at the time, had a very small treasury function, um, a very decentralized approach to treasury, um, a lot of obligations, obviously, as as a PLC in that context. And, you know, some strategic challenges to manage as well in terms of the market size of the company in total, but also the positioning within the markets, which we were subsequently able to address in the, the transaction with Vaganswinkle. You talk about how you restructured Treasury. So talk us through the, the the past, present and future. You know, where have you taken, you know, there was a, at the time you would join Shanks, but then there was the coming together of the Treasuries. Take us from the Shanks Treasury and, you know, what you did, you walked into a Treasury that perhaps needed refreshing, you know, how did you approach that? Yeah, so I mean, the, the treasury function when I um, joined was it was fairly basic, fairly manual, spreadsheet oriented. I think it'd be fair to say, um, and fairly decentralised. 
so you know that that was quite different to what we've now created, which is a much more centralized treasury function, which involves a high degree of automation with the implementation of a treasury management system. We, we're taking control over some of the, the cash responsibilities of the group. We've transformed the funding structure. Uh, we've grown the team size. We've sort of, uh, improved the, the capability of the treasury function, which has really enabled us to deliver a lot of, sort of high value add opportunities over the, the last couple of years and, and make it a much more resilient treasury function um, than the one I inherited um, a number of years ago. So, you know, in that sense, we've uh, we've moved the treasury function forward very significantly in that context. Your ethos around treasury, some people have sort of said, oh, it's all about de-risking everything. You know, what's your reason behind treasury? What's your, you know, your message, if you like? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for me, what's been particularly successful is really trying to focus on how Treasury can add value and thinking about that in, in a very clinical fashion in terms of what the value add opportunities are through different projects and making sure that we spend the limited time that we have on the things that have the, the maximum value. And to be able to do that, necessarily trying to um, reduce the focus of time and effort on, on the lower value activities and therefore to try to really improve processes where possible to improve automation, to improve homogeneity and consistency across the group to to make those things that would otherwise distract and take time and effort to deliver to become less so, to free more time to be able to deliver the things that are very important and, and add a lot of value. Um, and then I think, you know, within that context also once we have something that we want to deliver I think it's also a very practical approach to implementation, which is you know, not, not spending a long time trying to generate something fancy that you hope will work, but trying to get on with it. And I always think of that as a sort of iterative approach where you, you start something and, and you start to implement it with the full knowledge that it can be improved over time. But the important step is getting it, getting it up and running in the first place and then making sure that the focus remains to continue to implement it rather than waiting for a perfect solution to to come along. And I think by doing that, we've enabled us to, to really focus on some very high value items, but also to get a number of projects up and running that, that would otherwise have died if, if we'd waited for, for the eventual solution to be perfect. Yeah. And you've been with the group three years and you've been through a merger and you've seen you know teams come together and everything else. What would you say has been the... You know that aside, or maybe part of that. What's been the biggest challenge for you? You know, looking back over the time you've been there, think, well, that was that was horrible. This is how we got through it. Or you know, what was the biggest challenge? I think we've had a, a number of different challenges. I think uh, bringing you know Shanks and Van Ganswinkel together, a uh, major corporate transaction companies of approximately the same size, so a sort of a merger of equals in that in the context of, of that perspective is quite difficult to, to bring different organizational cultures together across different countries in Europe as well. So that that's always represents some challenges and we're still very much in that post-merger integration phase at the moment of trying to create the single way of working, the, the one unified way of being uh, renewy. So that's, that's the, the ongoing challenge for us that we've been working on quite extensively over the last few years. I think also there's been a number of other you know, sort of challenges along the way, you know, particularly as a result of the acquisition. The, the leverage is also at a relatively high point at the moment, so we have to 
manage that carefully and communicate that carefully with our investor base and, and look to bring that down over time. It's, it's following a trajectory that would be expected given the merger, but it also makes it a more sensitive period from a treasury perspective. So we need to carry on managing that carefully over time. What do you like as a boss? What's your ethos around team management and running those treasury guys or helping them? Yeah, so I think helping them is probably the right description, actually. So I like to be supportive to to the team and and give them a lot of opportunity with a lot of space to be able to deliver projects. So giving them a very clear responsibility for specific projects and trying to, to make sure that they have the space to be able to take ownership for those and deliver those. Uh, for example, one of the team are at the moment delivering the, the cash management transformation project that we're working on, which is to centralize um, all of our cash responsibility, implement a, a cash pooling approach and implement the, the, the treasury management system as a payment gateway for, for all of our activity and forecasting. Uh, so it's a fairly significant project, but they get a good opportunity to run that on a day-to-day basis and keep me informed. And they ask me for my input where they think it'd be valuable. And, and, and that works very well, I think, in terms of giving them the opportunities to grow and the space to grow and, and, and feedback along the way to make it successful. And where are they, are they all based in the UK or...? No, we've got uh, the team split between the UK uh, and the Netherlands as well, right. which is sort of typical for the entire Renewy business. The majority of our business is based in the Netherlands and Belgium. About 90% of the operations are there. Right. Um, so unsurprisingly, we have a presence in, in the Netherlands and Belgium as well for, for most of our functional activities. So how do you manage those guys remotely? You, you know, is it one, a quick call on the phone every week? How How do you manage those guys when they're... X amount of miles away from you? I think it's important to be present with the team on a regular basis. We've got one of our colleagues over here today, for example, from, from Eindhoven. But personally, I, I'm, I'm probably in the Netherlands and Belgium most weeks to, to make sure that I spend time with the team, but also the broader network of, of people that we work with internally and externally, the banks, but also our, our colleagues within the Renewy business. It's, it's really important to get as close as possible from my perspective to, to the business to understand what's going on, to, to the advisors, to the to the lenders, to understand their issues and concerns, uh, and to develop a strong relationship with each of them to be able to be effective for, for all the things that we're trying to do. So there's a lot of effort goes into maintaining those relationships. There's a, a fair few air miles generated, even though it's only a short hop over to the Netherlands. Yeah, but face-to-face actually helps as well. And when you're in that recruitment phase, what is it you're looking for? I mean, looking at your background, you've got this great history, you know, know, A-levels, great degree, then, you know, qualified accountant, treasury exams. Actually, I want someone just like that. Or what's your ethos around recruitment? When you're looking at someone and you're sifting through resume CVs, what are you looking for? What's the standout factor for you? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, diversity is really important. So a carbon copy of myself is not going to be a a good team mix at all. So Mm. rarely do I look to recruit in my own mold. And if I get biased towards that direction, I normally come back from it quite quickly, actually. So, But but that said, I think there's components that are relevant. You know, I think uh, having appropriate qualifications for the, the role that you're doing, whilst it doesn't necessarily help you to do the day job, it also does show that you have a commitment to continuous education and to learning and to trying new things and to, to learn from those experiences, which I think is an important characteristic. So that's 
certainly um, important. And, and then I think there's obviously different roles within Treasury that require different sorts of skills. So making sure that the people that we're hiring, um, you know, have the, the right sort of skill set for the, the role that we want. And sometimes that's going to be a, a very detail-oriented and, and routine processing activity. And sometimes that's going to be a more expansive role where people can, you know, run out big projects and, and make them their own and, and, and deliver them. So very much a sort of horses for courses approach to yeah. recruitment and, and making sure that we get the the right people for the right situation um, and then making sure that the candidates you know fit well within the organizational context as well so you know making sure that they're, they're going to be somebody who can you know, communicate effectively particularly with the rest of the the business is very important and um, particularly in the, the small teams that we have so to understand the business to be able to communicate treasury um, and to be able to understand what's going on in the business and reflect on that and, and how we manage the treasury function, uh, some of the important uh, skills from, from my perspective. And when you've looked at those people that are able to communicate, what, what's been the standout factor for you or how have you assessed that when you've interviewed them or spoken to them or you know, spoken to them throughout the process? What's been the, oh, actually, that's the person we want? You know, how, how have you assessed that, as it were? I think an important part of the assessment is you know, the Treasury function is very capable of assessing the Treasury capability and requirements. And you know, in some ways, whether you can communicate with somebody outside of Treasury is a very important test and therefore an important part of the recruitment process from my perspective. So you know, meeting with the, the broader finance team, whether that's within the controlling team or, or FP&A or elsewhere, you know, to be able to have a conversation with those team members particularly and, and, and not get lost in, in treasury detail as some people can um, and be able to, to come across well to those people and, and therefore be people that the, the, the broader team can work with effectively on a day-to-day -day basis is, is one of the key things that we were able to do here. And have you ever, you know, struggled to find those people or, you know, what, what's been the, you know, what have been the challenges for you? I think one of the recruitment challenges for us is just a, an out-of-town location, um, whether in the UK or in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. um, so that influences the candidate pools quite significantly. Um, certainly in my past when I've been recruiting in London, it's been a broader slate of, uh, of candidates and, and therefore better able to do that. I think one of the key differentiators for, for Renewy in that context is the purpose of the company is such a positive purpose that it's a very attractive company to work for in terms of what it does and, and the contribution to society that comes from that, the contribution to the environment that comes from that. And we certainly emphasize that. We've emphasized that through our funding structure and making it into a, a green financing as a as a visible way of describing that, but also it, it does translate through to how passionate people feel within the organization about the value of what we're doing for our customers, um, which is otherwise not necessarily very glamorous. And you've been in Treasury now 20 years. How have you seen it change? I mean, it's difficult to comment. I think I've worked in lots of different Treasury functions and, and lots of different capital structures and in different industries. So the you know, it's not been a linear path for me right. in that context. So I haven't, um, I haven't grown up in a treasury function in the same way as, as some of the other people that you may have interviewed have. But I think, mm. you know, certainly um, in the current context, you know, looking um, at, you know, uh, process improvement, but the use of systems and automation 
within that context is a, is a valuable part of, of what we're doing at the moment. But some, some of the skills in Treasury are timeless, that they don't change you know, in terms of looking at the, the capital structure and managing the cash flows carefully and, and projecting that as best you can and managing the relationships with the banking group or developing relationships with the advisors, the lawyers, the, the corporate finance advisors, the risk management advisors, etc. I think are, are fairly timeless and unchanging uh, and it's perhaps just a little bit more in terms of the sophistication of how we do that and progressively making each of the treasury functions that we work in progressively more sophisticated over time and more efficient over time as well. Yeah, I think it's, well, certainly from the conversations I've had, you talk about derived value there maybe of what a treasurer does. I've sometimes felt on a couple of the shows that people have said, well, we're going to be replaced by robots or, you know, everything technology is taking over and streamlining the jobs and we'll be streamlined out of a job. But actually, as you say, it's about much more than that. And that's certainly what I found from talking to treasurers like yourself for the past 20 years that actually you're not just you know guys that switch on the pc and feed in the data and outcomes the results thanks very much it's all about yes there's a part of that but actually it's about all the other stuff you do all the relationship and and all the other things that you actually add value on as well and you see that you know in yeah, the there's a lot of go on I think that's right. And it's also a lot of, you know, interpretation of information. It's not just the generation of information. So the systems and automation help generate some information in a better, cleaner fashion, which becomes more actionable, uh, more intuitive to use and more reliable. But absent that, actually, the treasurer's skills are even more in demand, which is to try to make sense when, you know, some of the um, indicators are not as clear as you would like them to be. Hmm. Um, but we've um, we've been implementing some ro- robotization in our shared service center, and, and I really like the description that our shared service center leader uses, which he thinks of the robots as uh, as employees. You know that they have sick days, that they go wrong occasionally, that they need <laughs> care and maintenance in the same way that an employee does. So uh, I don't think it's a utopian answer that uh, automation will be able to survive without the the input of, of experienced users to manage and control, to configure, to, to, to make them work properly and to fix them when they go wrong as well. So I think there's still a, a huge role to, to do even when you are on a process of, uh, of automation as well. Yeah, we're not all humans aren't redundant quite yet. No, I think we'll still be you know, for, no, for a long <laughs> And as we approach the uh, the end of today's show, we we spoke before, and I was going to say to people that Adam said again that it's okay to connect with him via LinkedIn and things. But when you're looking at Adam's LinkedIn profile, you might look at it oh, actually that I'd, I'd like to sort of have a similar career journey, or you know, I like bits of it and things like that. If you look back over your career and someone says, actually, I want to mimic that or I want to sort of follow a similar career path, what advice would you give someone as a sort of the closing bit of today? You know, someone comes to you and says, oh, how did you do it, Adam? Or I want to do this. You know, what would you say to those guys? I've been very lucky to have a, a lot of varied experience over my time, both in terms of the organizations that I've worked in from you know, large U.S. companies to privately owned companies to publicly owned companies to you know, highly leveraged to, to low leverage companies. And, and it's all that adds that richness to your background and experience. So if you can achieve that, I think that's very, very helpful. And, and I think also, you know, the complement of working on your um, experience in the job 
in addition to working on developing your experience through technical qualifications, for example, the MCT that we mentioned earlier, I think is very valuable as well, but, but also in parallel to each of those components, it's also important to focus on the, the individual skills as well that are required to be effective within an organization, the typical sort of professional development skills that enable you to be more successful in delivering the, the solutions that you want to. So I think working on all of those things in parallel throughout your career is a, is a very valuable aspect and something that I continue to focus on today. So work in a breadth of companies, develop your technical qualifications, and at the same time get your interpersonals going well as well, and, and then you get to be the treasurer of a, a renewee. That's it, as easy as that. <laughs> Fantastic. Adam, thank you very much for today's show. What we'll do, as I say, we'll put Adam's LinkedIn profile in the show notes. Feel free to connect with him if, if he feels relevant and things like that. And uh, look forward to the future growth of the company and keep on developing Renewi and doing some good for the world. Thank you. Thanks very much. <laughs>